1: It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today. Dr. Diane Feingood is currently seconded to SFU's Center for Dialogue, where she is developing a innovative new semester in dialogue on health and wellness. Today she's gonna to be talking about health and wellness in the age of complexity. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Diane Feingood. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. Nice nice crowd on a Sunday morning. Um, so this is the topic. And um, so I've got four main key messages. And I'm going to give them to you right up front. I was always taught back when I was a student that you tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. So here's what I'm going to tell you about. The first is that we're living in an age of complexity. And I'll, I'll speak to what that means uh, and how you might think about it. Um, Uh, that complex problems are not the same as simple or complicated problems and we'll make that distinction and it's an important distinction Certainly health and wellness uh, is complex, and we'll talk a little bit about that, use that as an example. But the reason it's important that uh, we remember that complex problems are not the same as simple or complicated problems is because the way we need to go about solving, solving those problems needs to be different. We, we cannot rely on the methods that we use to solve simple or com- complicated problems uh, to solve complex problems. So I want to make that big distinction between complex and complicated. So, so let's think about that. So first of all, complexity is rising. I, I, this is uh, clearly a fictitious graph um, uh, because it really depends on how you measure complexity. Uh, the fellow that I learned this from Uh, argues that around the time that the internet came into being uh, the complexity of the world surpassed our individual complexity or our ability to cope with that complexity. It's hypothetical but if if this doesn't make any sense the thing to think about when you think about complexity is think about a problem and how much information it takes you to describe that problem. The more information it takes the more complex a problem is. Okay? Make, make sense, sort of? Well, here's a really simple analogy. Let's do this one first. And this thing only works, sort of. Okay. So complex is not the same as complicated. A simple problem might be baking a cake. You've got a recipe. It's fairly reproducible. There's not a lot of random behavior that interferes with a cake. Maybe a little, but in general, not. Complicated would be something like sending a rocket to the moon so again there's a recipe there's a plan Um, some randomness can come into play you need a lot of expertise and a lot of different pieces to send a rocket to the moon but except for a few notable exceptions if you're sending one there you usually get it there there's obviously been some you know problems with spaceflight but in general that would be considered a complex a complicated problem but a complex problem would be raising a child think about it so when you raise a child there's lots of different things to think about it there's many different factors but there's a lot of uh, randomness in the problem as well right so yes there's genes there's the environment that you create we have the mistaken belief that that environment is what drives the child yes environments that we live in make a difference uh, they're important but no matter what we do in raising a child they're gonna come out however they come out based on a whole host of different things, some of which are unpredictable in terms of life course and things of that sort. So you can see that complex is different from complicated when you compare the idea of raising a child to sending a rocket to the moon. If we had recipes for, you know, raising children that uh, were reproducible and actually worked, uh, the world would be a different sort of place, wouldn't it? Maybe worse, maybe better, hard to say in in that regard. So health and wellness are also uh, complex. Just like raising a child, there's lots of different things that are interdependent and relate to each other when you're thinking about uh, health and wellness. This is uh, about a 10-year-old map. It's called an obesity system map that was created in the UK. And I always say when I show this that I'm glad you can't read it because generally I put whatever label on it I want and then just say it's about that. But the the point is... (laughs) The point is here, what's the dominant aspect of the picture that you see? It's not the variables that relate to each other. It's the interdependencies. It's the connections between the variables. And this is an important aspect of complexity. It's about the connections. It's the fact that there are all these connections that may make it difficult to do something and I, I guess there is a pointer here. If I do something over here, I don't know whether it's really going to affect something over there, right? So that's that's kind of the th- the mindset that you need to realize when you're dealing with a complex problem. You can't predictably change it necessarily. You can, you can affect parts of the way the system works, but you can't necessarily predict how the whole system will react or whether interdependencies will um, compensate for the change you're trying to make. Sometimes those interdependencies lead to unintended co- consequences that are not helpful that actually s- send the system in a different direction. So that's the kind of thing you need to think about when you're thinking about health and wellness and complexity. Well, you know, uh, obesity, that was an obesity system map, is not the only complex problem in our world. Climate change is another complex problem that we're struggling with and we struggled for so many years because people wanted the proof that our actions on the ground were leading to climate change. But Those are very difficult things. Showing attribution to a particular um, uh, component in a complex problem is clearly difficult because if you've got all these interdependencies, you can't use the standard methods of science to isolate a couple of things, a couple of variables, and see how if I change one, I can see the change in the other. That's kind of the normal way we think about doing science. But when you have a complex problem, you can spend a whole lot of time and energy trying to work out all those causes of the problem, and you haven't even started thinking about the solutions. And so I tend to rail, ag- rail against people who want to work out the causes of the problem and think that the solutions are always going to be found there. They aren't necessarily. And I'm going to give you some ideas later about how where the solutions lie. Uh, but climate. Change is complex, terrorism is complex, really complex. There's an awful lot of randomness in that. There's um, uh, lots of non-linearities where, uh, you know, if I do this, I'm, I'm not necessarily predictably going to get that. So there are all these different kinds of problems. I'm sure there are things that you think and read about that are complex. Get, get an idea in your head of a problem that's of interest to you and start thinking, are there lots of interdependencies, things that in interact that make it difficult to make change. So the common responses, unfortunately, to complex problems are things like despair, uh, retreat and despair, believing the problem is beyond hope. This is how we articulate them in the media sometimes. Uh, assigning blame, we're really good at that with respect to uh, complex problems in our world. As as a Minister of Health told me once, in, in, in health shit rolls uphill. So, you know, the idea being that the Minister seems to be responsible for everything that goes wrong, whether it's beds in the Tim Horton or something else, when he's not making direct decisions that necessarily lead to that kind of an outcome. Uh, assigning blame. Uh, Simple solutions, of course, are uh, a common response to complex problems. And occasionally will galvanize our collective efforts to really try to solve a problem. I think ten years ago as it related to chronic disease and obesity we actually did see more investments in this country and other countries in trying to address that problem one of the challenges though is that sometimes when we do this we then go down a path of the wrong kind of solution often solutions that are built for simple or complicated problems when this one is complex So, you know in obesity everybody says the solution is just to tell people eat less and move more. But that really is a very simplistic picture of uh, how you can deal with this problem. And I'm not suggesting that the in- individuals and their actions don't matter. We'll talk about that later. but. Just telling people to do this doesn't make it feasible for them to deal with this complex uh, problem. I prefer, if you want a simple message about health and wellness, I tend to prefer Michael Pollan's uh, advice around food, which is seven words, eat less, mostly plants, not too much. That's the best advice I've ever heard about, about what to do from a, a food point of view. And, and part of the reason that our food environment is so complex is because food science has worked out all the individual ingredients in food stuff, tried to relate them to health and wellness, and then now we have hundreds of different things that we give you advice on uh, as it relates to the individual constituents in our food but that doesn't really tell you how to eat and there's not evidence in the, in the literature that says if I eat... well we could use the subway example subways every day you know it's, it's not about um, whole foods it tends to be about the ingredients and when you repackage them or when they're in whole foods you don't really know how they necessarily work so I think it's challenging to take the way we've done science and apply it to giving people good advice. So. Um, There are solutions though that are appropriate for complex problems. Now I put solutions in quotes because solutions isn't really a very good word uh, to use when you're talking about complex problems because you never actually solve a complex problem. You can approach it, you can address it, you can try to improve the way the system behaves but you can't really solve it. Okay. Uh, But, and the other comment here is that solutions or approaches to solving complex problems, as I've already said, doesn't necessarily lie in understanding the problem in completely or completely. It's not necessary to always understand it completely. If you understand that the problem has some of the attributes of complexity, then in fact starting to think and change the frame of how you think about the problem. Recognizing its complex can be very helpful. So. Um the Brits of course call them wicked problems instead of complex problems certainly more I like that language it's good so they articulate that wicked problems are are, uh, different from tame problems so as opposed to complex and simple and back in the mid 70's when I was still in high school and that's a long time ago for me uh, they recognized that complex public policy problems really can't be solved the way we think about simple or complicated problems. So they talk about the fact that there is no definitive formulation. You cannot work out all the causes of a complex problem and expect that that's generalizable across, uh, across countries and things. So you can't work out all the causes of terrorism in the U.S. and expect that it applies to Britain, just as a simple example. Uh, Wicked problems have no stopping rule. In other words, there's no... And there's no ultimate test that leads to, okay, so if I try this intervention, which is addressing this complex problem, I'll find out whether things are better or worse. That doesn't necessarily tell you whether what you did actually helped or hindered. And I'll give you the example uh, when we talk about tobacco in a second. Uh, there's no immediate test, no uh, ultimate test or solution of a wicked problem. And so it's not that problems are uh, true or false. They say good or bad. So move you in the right direction, in the direction you want to push the system, or move you in the wrong direction. That's the basic idea. So the, the key here is that we need to change our frame of mind as I've said about how we go about solving these problems. We need to look at them differently and recognize that by looking at them differently we can start to think about uh, useful solutions. So let's talk about tobacco as an example. You know, 40 years ago smokers were cool. Right? We had advertisements around us that told us that many sensible uh, people who cared about their health, many doctors were used in advertisements to tell us that smoking was a good thing to do, right? Now, smokers are pariahs. They're sent outside. Uh, they, you know, they're huddled in masses near the door. If you live in Edmonton and it's 40 below, you still have to go outside to smoke your cigarette. So we think really differently about smokers today than we did 30, 40, 50 years ago, right? We've had a paradigm shift. Our deeply held beliefs about smokers themselves has, have changed, right? And that has made it quite feasible to really drive tobacco consumption rates down. How did we get there? How did we get to those changes? Well, um, in the US, so this is tobacco consumption in the US as a function of time, and I tried valiantly this morning to get, there's a a newer, oops, what have I done? There's a newer version of it that that goes uh, further into uh, the like 2012 it just imagine this line continuing down in the in the pattern that it has I couldn't get it I couldn't capture the picture but here's here's the thing to look at so you know we we learned that smoking caused cancer over here and while that had an effect for a little while on changing consumption rates they went back up and we've had the Surgeon General's report this is in the US broadcast ban it's interesting to think that as we started to remove images of smokers as being cool in our environment, out of our environment, as we took those things out of our environment, it didn't have an immediate effect on um, people's consumption of tobacco. So we we might think that that failed, right? But it probably didn't fail, it was probably an important component of the total picture that enabled the climate for us to shift the way we thought about smokers. My sense is that the tipping point is when non-smokers' rights movement began, because now a non-smoker could say to a smoker, "I'm sorry, you can't smoke in my environment because you're affecting my health." So when that started to happen, we started to push people to to be away from us and out of our environment to uh, decrease the smoking and as a result we've seen this sort of trend but the the key take home message here is probably all of the things that happened whether you could see an immediate effect or not on tobacco consumption played a role in helping change the way we think about smokers they took messages out of our environment they put new messages into our environment and we did other things like raising taxes and, uh, and changing accessibility which all came together to change, in essence, our deeply held beliefs about tobacco and smoking. And the point here is that when we think about complex problems, we need to remember that there are different levels at which we need to think about the problem. So I've just been talking to you about the top of the pyramid, if you will, or deeply held beliefs. So those are the hardest thing to change, but they're the most effective if you can change them or if they change, right? When you think about it, those, those beliefs that we hold, they really drive our behavior in many ways. And so it's really helpful when you tackle the way we think about the problem. Uh, certainly our goals are the structure of the system that we showed you before and all of those things are important and with decreasing uh, difficulty but also decreasing effectiveness as we go down the pyramid but we spend most of our time certainly in science and in the way we think about things tinkering down here and the structural elements we might have a introduce a program to address obesity or a program like uh, nicotine patches to reduce tobacco consumption those on an individual basis might be quite powerful but as it relates to the whole population doesn't necessarily solve the problem by itself. My own hypothesis is you know, you need to do lots of this, a little less of this and going up the, the food chain but you need to think about the problem at all of those levels when you're trying to tackle something as complex as tobacco consumption or, or obesity for that matter. So. Wicked problems. So what I've been saying, the language of an academic would be that wicked problems can't be solved with a reductionist paradigm. The way we do science for the most part today is to work out all the causes of a problem. That is reductionist. It's trying to work out all these different little pieces instead of being integrative and asking how do the pieces work when they come together as part of the whole. And the information needed to solve and understand a problem actually is the same as the information we need to start thinking so the way we define it is also the way we're thinking about solving a problem. Uh, the way we formulate it is, um, uh, is dependent on the problem and its specifications and understand problem understanding and problem resolution are actually the same thing and I'll, I'll give you an example of that so this obesity system map I said came out 10 years ago, something like that. What are the things you can do, so this was constructed by a group of stakeholders in the UK who came together, some of them experts in things like physical activity and the built environment to construct all this map and all the things that they knew about in their part of the system that were relevant and connect them up. We did a little piece of work where we zoomed out on the map. So what you see here are the regions in the map that exist. So uh, food production, food consumption, physiology, um, engine is the individual who's uh, eating and uh, physically active, physical activity itself, psychology, uh, all of these things. Now what you're seeing here in this map is the reason why the lines have different thicknesses is the thickness is proportional to the number of underlying connections, that people who constructed this map believed existed. And that leads to some interesting observations here. The first is that um, the people involved knew a lot about the physiology of obesity, and in fact there's more than 600 genes or places on the human genome that are actually associated with human obesity. There are genes associated with our ability to push back from a buffet table. So researchers have actually worked out that there are genes that drive some of those behaviors, so it's not all about you, you don't have control over everything consciously, there are many genes that are uh, involved. Uh, but, but our built environment, for example, e- example, determines how physically active we are. I, I could be active this morning because I could take the SkyTrain from where I live to here and have to do a little walking on each side, so I'm more active as a result of that. If I'd used my car, I would have had many fewer steps to get here and so be less physically active. The, the interesting thing about this map to me is that the strongest uh, influence that the, or the, the place where the stakeholders thought there was the most important drivers for food consumption was in food production. So that this, this had the most underlying connections between food production and food consumption. But what's also interesting to me is there's no return arrows. It doesn't say that food consumption drives food production. So the people who constructed this map, I'm willing to bet, did not work in the food industry and had a certain bent against the food industry because they're arguing that it's the food industry that's driving what we eat. But I know a lot of people who work in the food industry, and they will tell you that food consumption absolutely drives to what they produce. Now, it's not a clean, you know, yes or no and certainly uh, people who produce food also advertise it to get you to consume it. But if you're not going to consume it, they're not going to make it. And there's lots of good examples. I mean, look at the proliferation of things like gluten-free food. There's a demand for gluten-free food. People are asking for it, they want it. So, it's more and more produced so clearly there is a relationship here Uh, but this tells me that the group of people who created that map the one that we saw probably didn't contain too many people in the food industry and maybe even had a bias against uh, or towards thinking that the food industry is responsible wanting to blame them again shared problem definition one of the things this map does is it creates an opportunity to have a conversation about what are the drivers and and if we look at here's another version of the map with little regions um, colored in and this was produced by a cross-government initiative in the UK it used to have the tags of all the different departments on it but the person who shared it with me asked me to take that off because it had never been published but the point is that if you work at having a shared understanding of what the different elements in a complex problem are, then you can begin to have a conversation about where you might have the ability to address the problem, right? And so each of these regions here is a region where a different government department said, hey, we influence that variable, let's talk about what we might be able to do uh, to change that and in fact in BC there was an initiative uh, around before the 2010 Olympics where government put money into a pot and enabled department ministries other than health to drive health related projects by working with the Ministry of Health and transportation or uh, infrastructure whatever the, the case may be So by having a shared understanding Even in its complexity, we can begin to share our thinking about uh, ways to solve the problem. Um, How we go about change. In a complex problem, matters. So, you know, we're used to, uh, uh, especially, and this works well for complicated problems where there's not a lot of unpredictability, we're used to making things happen. Governments are used to making things happen. They're hierarchical structures that use sort of orderly planned and regulated and programmed kinds of approaches to solving problems they're managerial in nature and they're about re-engineering and things like that but in a complex problem that's pretty tough to do if you've got that big spaghetti and uh, meatball kind of diagram there's nobody on top of that that says we're gonna make things happen in this way and so you need to actually think about how you can help things happen. And the, the features of that are more like negotiation, they're influence, There's social, there are some technical solutions but it's about, about exchanging information and knowledge. It's about enabling individuals in the system to understand where they might fit and what influences they might have on the system. But it's not so much about telling people you have to do X, it's about encouraging it. And sometimes you can let it happen, i.e., you know, have sort of unpredictable, natural, kind of emergent uh, processes. But but that doesn't get you necessarily where you want to go very fast. And so we do see the emergence of various kinds of social movements now in, in various in, interesting ways. I think the March on Washington that happened this week uh, and the number of uh, kids that uh, came to Washington to protest uh, the gun, gun laws in the U.S., um, it was kind of an emergent uh, behavior and uh, with a little bit of uh, support um, uh, one might be able to turn that into something um, uh, more helpful. In complex problems we also need to build trust. So think about all those interconnections, right? They're usually individuals involved in the relationships between uh, public health and the food industry, between you know an individual and the environment that they live in. There's many different things there. And trust is a really important variable in a complex problem. Why is that? Well think about it. If we live in a complex environment. Uh, Or if we live in a low trust environment, it's more complex to operate. Think about people who live in places where there is a lot of terrorist activity so there's not a lot of trust that when you walk out the door you're going to be safe unlike here where you're generally trust that you're going to be safe if you live in that kind of low trust environment it's more complex for you to operate whereas if trust is high you don't have to think about things like how safe you're going to be when you walk out the door it's just it's out of your mind so it's easier to function and it's easier to deal with uh, complex environments uh, by building trust. So it's one of the solutions I would argue that you can that that's important in a complex problem and doesn't require you to figure out what the cause of the problem is, just assume it's a problem and work at building trust because that will reduce the complexity of the problem. Need to build communities of practice. So what do I mean by that? Well, you know Others will have, said, I've sort of tried to say the problem definition and problem resolution are the same. And each solution is unique to the particular group and individual uh, people who are involved in it. So so terrorism on the ground in uh, B.C. or um, uh, is different from it might be in Ottawa, might be different from the U.S., etc. But if you start to bring people who are trying to tackle local problems together, then they share their learnings, their approach, their understanding. So building, uh, going from creating a network of people who are tackling a similar problem to a community of practice is an important shift. So networks tend to be self-organized, you're there for self-interest, but community of practice start to build trust build relationships and you start to be there uh, for the, what you gain as well and what you can give to the group and ideas will move more rapidly. And sometimes communities of practice become uh, systems of influence where, where things can move rapidly, ideas can move more rapidly and change can happen more rapidly. We need to focus on uh, the whole instead of the parts when we think about complex problems. So rather than that reductionist approach of working out all the causes of the problem, we need to be integrative. We need to focus on, as I've said already, those relationships, the boundaries, uh, context, who the actors are, uh, what their actions and outcomes are. So we need to focus our attention in different ways. And we need to consider important things like power imbalances, the heterogeneity of the population. How how different are we? We can't have one solution to addressing a problem like obesity when we have so many different genes and life courses that are important to solving that problem. We need to think at the very least in terms of uh, groups of people, maybe with common characteristics. So let's not think of us all as the same. Uh, Let's think of us each either as individuals if we have to, or as groups of people with common uh, experiences and, and knowledge. And things like randomness, etc are all important. So these are all kind of different different ways to go about solving these kinds of problems. So, Uh, The key messages, again, as I said, are that we're living in an age of complexity. I I shouldn't have to sort of prove that to you. I'm sure you can all imagine, pick any problem of interest to you uh, and think about that. Um, Clearly, hopefully, I've uh, helped you understand that the complex problems are not the same as simple or complicated problems. It always makes me slightly crazy when uh, a speaker will use the word complex and complicated interchangeably. So uh, I often call them on it, but, you know, many people don't necessarily understand that distinction. Remember, bake a cake. Uh, Send a rocket to the moon, raise a child. Sending a rocket to the moon and raising a child are really very different sorts of activities. Um, Health and wellness is clearly complex, and and the way we go about solving complex problems um, are not the same as simple or complicated problems. But I have one last message, and it may seem counterintuitive, but it's that individuals still matter. So big, messy, lots of interconnections, but actually the individuals if you zoom in instead of out as I did and you zoom right down to your level as it relates to a problem like this we actually still matter because in the case of health and wellness we are kind of the one in final control there are many things in our context that might affect us but ultimately we're the only ones who've lived our life course, who've had our experiences, who have our genes, uh, and have all the experiences that we have. So let's think about that. I've got a few more slides if I can get them up. So individuals still matter. Life course matters. Where we grew up matters. Uh, Who our mother was matters. Now, you may not notice. This is obviously me and my mother uh, a few years ago. Maybe not so obvious. Uh, But um, uh, so there's some pretty interesting things in this photo. Like here's the cigarette in my mother's hand. She couldn't even put it down to have the photo taken, which I find quite fascinating. So I grew up in a house full of cigarette smoke, actually. Uh, My mother was clearly a sewer, so she made both of these outfits for us. Uh, not something that happens too often uh, today. We lived in a suburb of uh, Detroit. And um, and there was a time when, uh, one of the times, one of the many times in my life, when I was actually pretty thin. So um, I, I can't remember uh, exactly uh, which Uh, what was the driver for this, but my mother had a penchant for going to Weight Watchers, and, of course, she took her overweight daughter with her. And so I was a Weight Watchers teen queen back then. (laughs) So they actually had uh... beauty pageants for people who attended weight watchers girls that attended weight watchers uh, if you'd lost a large amount of weight so i got to be uh, a weight watchers teen queen i love the picture here So, anyway so it's just to say that my life course um, uh, and where i am today is in part influenced by my mother the environment i grew up in my genes uh... and even those things back in the 70s affect me today because we know from the literature that things like repeated cycles of weight loss and weight gain, which is fairly common in my personal experience on Weight Watchers or other types of approaches to losing weight, uh, actually affect your basal metabolic rate. So I actually know now that I can't eat more than about 15, 1,600 calories a day if I want to maintain my weight. So. Unfortunate but true. But in addition to being a Weight Watchers teen queen, I was also the queen of diabetes and at least that's how I was known in my household uh, by my wife. Um, And what that means is I served as the first scientific director of uh, our Canadian Institutes of Health Research. Institute of Nutrition, Metabolism, and Diabetes. So in 2000, Canada created a new body for funding health research, and I became the queen of diabetes. I I was the head of an institute that was focused on obesity, so it's partly uh, why I know a lot about it. But this is what I looked like when I got that job. So clearly, um, you know, through my life course, uh, things had changed, and I had gotten to a point in the '90s where I'd said, you know, I'm really tired of this weight loss weight gain cycle. So I said, I'm going to just stop going on diets, and then gradually gained, and uh, you know, probably got to about 250 pounds. But there's nothing like being the queen of diabetes and having people look at your plate all the time to help support uh, some weight loss. And so again, yet another cycle of weight loss and. Uh, weight gain. And here I am today. I've put a few pounds back on unfortunately. Uh, and um, and what worked back then isn't necessarily what works today for an individual because all of those changes occur. And so today, if I can get you to turn. Maybe I'll do it myself. Okay. Um, uh, I'm the kind of person who, who really likes to do self-monitoring. So I need to self-monitor in order to manage my food intake and physical activity so now this isn't something that works for everybody but you know I'm a scientist I have a background in engineering numbers matter to me and so I self-monitor three things I'm I self monitor my weight and you can see that I've been working at trying to this is these are all from this morning lose weight over the last period of time and I managed to take off another 10 pounds count my steps every day, uh, and I try to achieve 10,000 steps every day if I get into the, getting into the green means I've gotten my 10,000 steps or more. Uh, Didn't quite make it yesterday, and today, uh, well, that was before I went out this morning. And I've now uh, done this sort of thing where I uh, limit the period of time I eat so I'm doing this kind of intermittent fasting and what the reason why it's important for me is a little less about the fast and a little more about the fact that I love to eat when I'm sitting watching TV at night but if I turn on my app that says my fast has started I won't do it like it's just it's a bit shocking to me that that behavior would would be there without really thinking about it but all i had to do was say i'm gonna fast turn on the fast app say i've started it and i won't eat again until i turn it off which is kind of crazy really but hey it works for me Uh, At least it's worked uh, to get me here. I'm afraid that I've reached the inevitable plateau for the behaviors that I have in place now. And again, this is why individuals matter. If I want to keep losing more weight, which I'd love to get back to the place where I could wear that lovely red tunic that I had on in that picture, uh, not quite there yet, but I'm going to have to find a new behavior to add to the behaviors I have now that will either take a little more food out of my diet or add a little more physical activity in my day. But I'm pretty active as it is—10,000 steps a day. I walk to work from Seventh and Cambie down to Harbour Centre. I go to the gym three times a week. Um, you know, I only eat for about eight hours in the day. You know, so it's like, okay, maybe I should just get come to grips with the fact that's what it is. Um, but. But I have a whole lifetime of the messages that we have uh, about physical activity, about overweight, all of that. Hey, I was the queen of diabetes. I know that overweight is, a, is a pro- inappropriate or not inappropriate. It can, it can add to an unhealthy outcome later in life. It can support the development of chronic disease. So anyways, all that being said, my behaviors still matter even though there's lots of things in my environment that also influence uh, my own uh, body weight. So what we have to do in sum is to think about the fact that individuals do matter and when we focus on trying to make change we need to make the healthy choice the easy choice. That's how we as a society can support people. Uh, We made Tobacco, not smoking, the easy choice by making it really difficult, by making it more costly, by making people go outside, by making people change their environment where they're going to smoke, we made it a lot harder. We made it easier to make the healthy choice the easy choice. It's a bit harder to do that with a problem like obesity because we still need to eat. We're in environments that affect our food and physical activity all the time. But that's how we can tackle a problem of that sort and uh, the many others that we have. So um, uh, I'm happy to answer questions and I appreciate your attention and I I think I ended just about on time.
3: Hi. Hi. Thank you for that. Um, uh, my question relates to machine learning. So I work for Microsoft. Um, what we've discovered is is that there are uh, a number of problems that are opaque to human modeling simply because of their complexity. Um, and what we've discovered is is by using machine learning, we can you know these causal chains or these dependency graphs that you that you've generated um, can emerge in using supervised and unsupervised learning in combination. Um, are you seeing this affecting the work that you do where People are using machine learning to uh, at least understand what the interdependencies are. Obviously, to your point, it ultimately it it lands up being something that people have to actual people have to go fix. But um, how is this impacting the work that you do? Are you seeing an impact?
2: So, what I would say is that in health in general, we're pretty far behind when it comes to using data, particularly particularly data that's collected in that sort of massive big data fashion. So our our laws around privacy, uh, around health data, are currently, you know, they were done 30, 40 years ago, and they really haven't caught up to kind of modern day thought about using data. And because governments, and because shit rolls uphill in health, and in BC we had that data breach, and I say, put quotes around it a few years ago, Governments are extremely risk-averse when it comes to allowing researchers, credible, uh, authentic researchers, to access the data. So, so I would say not yet because we can't get access to the, that kind of data. Um, it's easier to uh, get access to sort of non-health data than it is other data. So we really need to overhaul our... our perspectives around and our, our protections around our data. For example, we don't even own our own health data. Getting access to your own health data is not that easy. It would be if we simply gave people access and control over their own data, we'd end up giving researchers a lot more control because people could opt in to uh, their data being collected. So big, we need, really need some shifts in the policies that we have in place today to get to that place that you're talking about in health. Yeah, it, it's a big frustration. And that data breach, by the way, wasn't really a data breach. Some researchers used data to study a problem that they didn't get permission to study, um, and that was what that, None of, nobody's data was really at risk, but we called it the wrong thing and put a real pall over access, yeah.
4: Thank you very much. So uh, I just want to reassure you that I have the opposite problem that you have. So I'm a very inefficient processor of uh, food. Um, So evolution has made you a superior specimen because in the wild, I will die and you will survive.
2: Yes, (laughs) that's true. That's true.
4: But my wife doesn't buy that argument. She still envies me. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, my question is, um, I see what the example you gave for tobacco. And I always had the suspicion that had we used the same strategy for the rest of the drugs, uh, we could achieve similar positive results, unlike the strategy that we have used, which is lie. I mean, provide false information regarding how dangerous certain drugs are in comparison to others and basically randomly legalize some while criminalize others. Uh, I wonder if you agree with me that uh, we have the potential to, uh, I won't say solve the drug issue because people will always use some sort of uh, psychoactive drugs for recreational purposes, but if we can still have hope of using that strategy uh, to reduce uh, drug abuse.
2: Absolutely, I mean, you said it yourself, Um, uh, when it comes to drug abuse, just you, you can't assume that it's as simple as telling people to stop doing it. We, we've seen that fail for many years. Uh, and as a result, we, harm reduction is really about supporting individuals, helping them make, make better choices, supporting them so that they're in a position to even make a choice as opposed to not make a choice. So totally agree that um, we have to understand the nuances of what drives it. One of the interesting things that's happening now as it relates to the opioid uh, or the poisoning crisis is actually what we really should be thinking of it as as opposed to uh, the overdose crisis or the opioid crisis. It's a poisoning crisis because you know people have been using uh, these kinds of drugs for very a long time but into the supply has come this toxic mix of uh, agents and so it's much harder for individuals to regulate uh, themselves as they see fit so in fact making that legal would be um, and cleaning up the drug supply and enabling people to get prescriptions for it would lead to much greater self-regulation and stuff like that so completely agree but but your wife should believe you. And in fact, as it relates to obesity, one of the things that we know, for example, in Canada, um, uh, many Aboriginal communities are uh, become uh, overweight or obese much more quickly in our environment than others. And in, at least in one community, that's related to a gene. So if you're from a population that has been exposed to famine off and on for a very long time, the people who are still living are the ones who are very good at metabolizing food and and storing it and don't need a lot. And you're absolutely right. If we had a famine, the people who are going to die first are the ones like you and not like me. Apologies for saying that. (laughs) Yeah.
5: Uh, Hi. So you you talked about obesity and, Uh, tobacco consumption. What are the other, uh, like, big health factors that you're trying to tackle now? And from the perspective of an individual, there's a ridiculous myriad of uh, stuff that could happen to us. Uh, how are we supposed to handle this kind of complexity? Like, we we can we we are exposed to so many things that it's it's hard to to know where to begin, how to prevent them, kind of thing.
2: So one of the slides I didn't put in my talk, and maybe I should have, is one that talks about the need for us... So I said individuals matter. And when we focus on individuals, what we need to do is think about how we match an individual's capacity to the complexity of their task, be it eating healthy, uh, not smoking, that sort of thing. So intuitively think about this. If we could measure capacity and complexity on a scale that, that that made sense... And we said, um, if if my capacity to deal with a complex problem is greater than the complexity of the problem I'm dealing with, then I'm likely to succeed, right? If my capacity to deal with a complex problem is lower than the complexity of the problem, I'm much less likely to succeed. I'm more likely to fail. So that says to me that we should think about how we either reduce the complexity, the environments that we live in to try to encourage the healthy choice to be the easy choice, so to speak, or increase people's capacity. I think for years we've thought about education as a form of increasing capacity. I'm not really sure it's that effective as a way of increasing capacity for individuals. So putting me in an environment where I can take transit, for example, it means that I have a choice that's a healthy choice under those circumstances. So you're asking a bigger question, how do, how do we cope with that? Well one of the ways that we tend to cope with the complexity of our world is we do stuff mindlessly. So let's think about eating, for example, there's a researcher at Cornell who showed that you make about 250 decisions every day related to your food intake. So am I going to have breakfast or not? Am I going to stand at the counter and eat my toast? Am I going to have a Pop-Tart? Or you know, you, But you don't think consciously about all 250 of those decisions. Because if you did, you'd spend all your time thinking about food and what you're going to eat. And some of us do spend a lot of time doing that. But many people don't. So when the world that we live in is too complex, we tend to get more mindless. We, don't, we do things sort of more automatically and that's how we cope with the complexity of our world if we tried to understand it all it would be, it would be overwhelming there are many complex problems one of the things i'm trying to do these days is help those who've been in the traditional approaches to solving these problems like epidemiology which is a very reductionist science understand that we need we need to be able to measure capacity and complexity we need metrics for that so that we can understand how they relate to each other so i'm kind of at that kind of crazy level but i think People who work on complex problems, who've become frustrated with the way we approach it, things like climate change, et cetera, um, they're, they're, they're seeking solutions within the context of uh, the way people talk about complexity, the way complex systems thinkers think and um, uh, try to approach problems. So I don't know if that's a full answer to your question, but yeah.
0: Hi. Hi. Um, in one of your charts, you had um, food producers. Yep. And I kind of question that aspect because they make... Food producers are constantly trying to make you buy more of their stuff, especially junk food. Um, And they package it in very attractive uh, forms and make it easy that you can just microwave it or just pop the bag open or whatever. So they're... Really, a driving force, I think, in uh, especially for people who are food addicted. Um, the other thing is advertising. We are constantly being bombarded with ads, and um, for easy easy access to wonderful food, and this, you know, and everything's always happy, and and so forth. So, I think those those two. Th- factors are great influences on our food. Also the cost of healthy food as opposed to this fast food. Look, go to the grocery store and, and see what vegetables and fruits cost as opposed to some of the junk foods. Um,
2: yeah. yeah. So- I don't disagree with you, um, but I'm trying to make the point that... Uh, well, so I don't disagree with you. One of the things that one might want to do is unpack why is it that healthy food is more expensive than unhealthy food. So un- unhealthy food usually is food where there's value added, by the packaging and the way the producer puts the ingredients together. Um, uh, So they're selling you something that um, uh, that they think uh, it, it sounds cheaper but it isn't necessarily for the environment so that's one thing to keep in mind. It's also you need to consider the advertising is there in order to get you to buy it so that you can so that there's a profit there. But why are fruits and vegetables not cheap? Well, it relates to decisions that were taken years ago about, in the U.S., for example, subsidizing the production of corn. So still today, I believe that it costs more to produce a barrel of corn than it does to actually um, uh, uh, sell it. And so that's because it's subsidized, they can do it that cheaply. Corn is a great source of sugar. So, sugar's very cheap because we overproduce corn and invest in it. Why aren't we subsidizing fruit and vegetables more broadly, right? So, there's lots of decisions to unpack in that. And I'm not trying to say that that's not true, but let's also keep in mind that what we eat, what we choose to eat, even if it's driven by advertising or the fact that our taste receptors love sugar, fat, and salt, uh, and our brains like those things, um, that that our choice of eating those things does make a difference as well. So it, it's, we can't just blame the food industry. We don't want our food companies to go away. If our food companies went away, we would, have, we would not have a food supply.
5: Yeah, I'm Jake, and I have some, uh, some good news about if there's a famine. Uh, <laughs> because uh, Ezra and I, being Ectomorphs, we will track you down. Take a lot of your extra food. <laughs> Take a lot of your extra food. We'll survive. You'll lose weight. Everybody, it's a win win situation.
2: Absolutely. <laughs>
5: yeah, and as far as uh, junk food, it, it is a choice, and I don't consider junk food a food. If I see white bread, I don't consider that food. I will not eat it. Uh, I don't eat candy, and I have been doing this since 1969. No candy, no sugar, no salt. I avoid as much as I can. And occasionally, I'll drop into McDonald's for, you know.
2: Well, and you actually, usually regret it, don't you? It's, no, no, <laughs> no, no,
5: because uh, it's been twice, once last June and once yesterday. So,
2: <laughs> oh, no wonder you're owning up to it. <laughs> that's,
5: not, <laughs> that's not often. Yeah, the rest of the time, I only choose healthy food. So therefore, the price of it is of no consequence to me. I must eat healthy food. So that's just the way it is. Um, I want to, I noticed that in your exercise regime, <laughs> you, um, everything is aerobic exercise. Have I, you
2: I, No, I actually go to the, I lift weights as well.
5: Okay. I was about to say, have you ever considered anaerobic exercise? I used to, uh, own a, a personal training gym and, uh, anaerobic exercise, two half hours a week, no sweating, uh, most of the time is spent relaxing and the increase in muscle <laughs> on your body, it helps you burn energy 24 hours a day. So yeah, I'm always promoting that. That's what I do for myself too, because uh, I actually developed a system because it's uh, easy. <laughs> I got away. And for my, anaerobic, uh, for my aerobics, I, I simply walk a lot.
2: One of, the, one of the things I did this year actually is I treated myself to a personal trainer. So I did about twelve. I did twelve sessions with a personal trainer because I was always afraid to do um, uh, weightlifting and anaerobic exercise. If you if you don't feel like you know what you're doing, it it's a little bit scarier, right? You can hurt yourself a little more easily. So I treated myself, and and now I I, I go two to three times a week. Three when I'm uh, really on ball on the ball, and two when I'm slightly less on the ball. So,
5: well, I, I'm sorry, just about the. Uh Just about to turn 73, and for the first for the last four months, uh, situation arose where I couldn't do squats from my legs, and uh, I could do body weight squats. And I now I know why old people fall down, because I'm so weak in the legs. I'm back to the gym now. I've just done one session so far. So yeah, it's uh, you become dizzy, you fall down, and the bones break more easily because there's less uh, less density.
1: Hi, uh, the distinction you're making between complexity and uh, complicated, I think, is really helpful. Um, one thing's I—I I mean, I had chan- time to think this through, but one of the things I noticed as the difference between uh, complicated and complex is that there's often an ambiguity of, about what is desirable. There's a value judgment. Everybody can agree. Almost everybody can agree that a successful. Uh, trip to the moon involves getting people there and back safely, no question whether it was or not a success. Raising a child um, means, you know, what is a desirable outcome? Is it the happiness of the child, the happiness of the family, et cetera, et cetera, um, which makes it a little harder to deal with questions of evidence-based medicine or evidence-based anything. And some of the frustrations we feel sometimes when, oh, we've got the evidence and they're still ignoring it, I think is because we tend to forget that we may not be addressing the values. Uh, Basically, is that correct? And what can we do about it?
2: Yeah, um, absolutely uh, correct that um, when a problem is complex, there's a lot more. Interpretation going on, there can be random behavior going on, uh, ran, you know, the drivers are not necessarily clear. So you're absolutely right about that. W- what can we do about that? Well, one, I actually went to a workshop uh, about a week ago about um, helping to, dr- so it's, it was around principles focused evaluation. So the idea is that what we should be evaluating the impact of our Actions on are the principles that are driving those actions, not the specific details themselves. So, in healthcare, for example, you know, when we evaluate some program that was developed by government to address obesity, we ask, you know, how, how what happened to obesity, you know, h- how many kids participated, how many programs did we deliver. But if we frame the goals of what we're doing against principles which are essentially values if we really think about it that way and we ask did we actually implement something according to those values Were those values did we move as it relates to those we might actually be in a better place but again it goes back to what I was saying earlier about you know the top-down approach the managerial do this uh doesn't really work very well. We need to um, enable people to use the creativity that they have within the context of a system that's moving in the direction that we share is the right direction to go. And that direction should be driven in part by values. So you're absolutely right, those are issues. But you know, we've lived in a hierarchical top down system. Our government is designed that way. It creates silos that are unimaginable. Um, uh, those are real challenges to work against. Some people in government are getting this and are starting to think a little bit differently, but it's a slow process. And we need our systems to actually support us, to help us make the changes that we want to make for ourselves and for the society that we live in. So that's a too theoretical an answer to your question but it's kinda where we're at i think so
6: good morning uh... yeah just talking about this whole food thing is that um, you know uh, i think your statement we shouldn't blame the f- food industry but i think we should hold it much more accountable and just to give you a background um, i farmed most of my life and i also worked in senior government and i also worked for the largest agribusiness in canada and so I'll just give you an example about the power of corporations in terms of in terms of the food that we eat in in terms of this and and you probably aware I'm going to give you the example you know the basis of our country is the Canada food rules and as you know we we have a body that uh, of experts or whatever and so what's happened in this country if you look at the 70s and 80s we had that model where we took experts we went to the universities we went to Health Canada and as much as possible we had a food advisory committee that was as objective as it could be. And it was. It it was because we got good people from universities, good people. In the 1990s, that started to switch, and the food industry really put pressure, and during the Harper thing, that's when they really went to whatever. And so we have a Canadian food industry now where the food companies, the food processing companies, have got themselves either directly or indirectly on that committee. Okay. And guess what's happened in terms of this. So we have A&W now is somehow, you know, seen like they should be on on the food committee and, and, and that. And so we've now got to the point like, why on earth? I have two granddaughters growing up. Why would we, why would a decision in the food industry made to put more sugar in ketchup? And we know why they're doing that. The same thing as they've done it in cereals. So they should be held accountable for that. And you know how they do that? For 50 years, there's a saying, you don't put a fox in a hen house to guard the chickens. We've elected liberal and conservative governments. And if you look at the food corporations, pretty much all their donations have went to both of them. And so there's now an unfair balance between what's good for us. And talk about diabetes now, and you would know this. We now have, for the first time ever, right, we have children that are getting diabetes. Now, where did that come from? So this is the whole thing about power in our society and who gets to make decisions and the kind of food that we eat. And unless people start to turn that around, we're just going to keep spending more money on the health system to try and deal with problems that we should be, we should be, we should be dealing with through prevention.
2: So let me... Uh, add to a little bit the information that you just provided because uh, I know quite well the person who's responsible for the food guide in uh, the uh, Ministry of in Health in um, Health Canada. He actually worked for me at one time when I was the queen of diabetes. Um, So you're not quite right in the sense that yes during the harper years it was all about enabling food companies to uh... create influence but in fact today under the liberals that is not true anymore because what's happened is um, the fellow who's responsible is the final arbiter uh, and responsible for generating the food guide. He I, he actually invited me to be one of the experts on the panel that's doing modeling to figure out what the food guide constituents and the amounts would be there. But because. Five years, more than five years ago, I received money from the food industry to uh, enable a dialogue around building trust to support uh, uh, changes in addressing obesity. Just because I received that money five years ago and there was still a little bit of in, m- in my account at SFU, I was no longer able to sit on that committee because the level of influence that the food industry might have on me uh, was too high. So the rules are actually quite restrictive now they're not allowing anybody who has any even remote perceived relationship to the food industry on the committee that's doing the recommendations. That's a good thing. Yeah, it is a good thing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely that is a good thing. I'm not suggesting that's a bad thing at all. But I'm just trying to correct to say that actually the way things are right now is much more restrictive than it was in the Harper years around who's influencing what's on on the plate. Um, But I do also want to make the comment that uh, food companies are not always just doing the wrong thing, like adding sugar to ketchup. I visited Danone in France a number of years ago, and I was uh, told that they have been gradually reducing the sugar in European yogurts uh, year after year. They're lowering it without telling people because it's changing their palates, and so they might not want to be, you know, uh, displaying that they're doing this because not everybody will like it. And in fact, people will start to eat other yogurts because they taste better, the perception. So they're not always doing things that are evil. Sometimes they're doing things that are actually helpful and you don't necessarily know it. I'll tell you one other quick story about this. So um, uh, friends, because I was working at trying to build trust to engage in dialogue around food and food industry and obesity, I have a friend who works at uh, or worked at, he doesn't anymore, Kraft Foods, and he told the story about when Kraft Foods wanted to reduce the sodium in Kraft Dinner. So he showed the classic box of Kraft Dinner, and it said low sodium on it product bombed. Nobody bought it because they were worried it was not going to be as tasty. Then they figured it out, produced a box. that said, hint of sodium or hint of salt. (laughs) And it sold perfectly. And it was the same formulation as low sodium. Hint of salt was okay. It encouraged us to eat it. Campbell's food reduced the sodium in some of their soups And they did it voluntarily and had to reverse it because they started to lose so much market share because they didn't taste as good as the other soups and other people continued to buy them. So what are they supposed to do? Well, if we create regulation around how much sodium you can have in those foods, then you level the playing field for all the companies. So there's lots of complexities in how you go about this.
3: Uh, so I, I've heard a lot of topics. So I want to kind of bring them, bring them all together. So firstly, on the, on the blame thing, I, I, obviously, the food industry is part of the value network. Um, but you mentioned our, our brain's fondness for sugar, salt, and fat, right? And I read this really interesting, um, I guess you put it in sort of an evolutionary neurology camp, um, if you had to sort of label it. And it's, um, you know, the cognition is really expensive. Um, so usually, neural models for uh, interacting with our environments are incredibly simplified. And the, the salt, fat, sugar thing was such that if you lived on the plains of the savannah and you simply optimized for salt, sugar, and fat because of the things that coexisted with those things, all the trace elements, you literally, if you hunted animals that, and you maximized for the, the fat associated with those things, you would get everything else because they were vegetarians and they ate all the vegetables with the good stuff in them, right? Um, but now we're in this environment where we can produce salt, sugar, and fat pure, in pure form. And yet we have this reward system that is basically, you know, set up for an environment where those things were available in scarcity or certainly not in the pure form that they are today. Um, So a lot of what you've been talking about, it sounds like it falls into the sort of, uh, you know, uh, libertarian paternalism or is it paternal libertarianism? (laughs) You know, basically like nudging because we have obviously these cognitive biases and I wouldn't even call them that. We have these deep cognitive systems that are designed to make us eat literally almost suicidally um uh you know how do it sounds like the the solution is to sort of slowly nudge people almost uh without them realizing that we're doing it is that is you know how does that how does that resonate and and just by the way i I think the food industry is not to blame i I think if we have to if we have to blame any anyone and i never think blame is a useful mechanism it doesn't get you anywhere Is our own brains like really at the end of the day, our cognitive bias is the cause for all of this messes that we get ourselves in. And unless we start there and say, well, it's really about us, um, each of us individually recognizing that, you know, it's our own neurology that gets us in this in this mess in the first place. But my question is really about nudging people in the right direction. Is is that really the solution?
2: There is no solution. There's no one solution. So, for me, maybe helping me, uh, nudge me in the right direction by creating an environment where I can be active without having to work at it or I can eat less without having to work at it, that helps. But it isn't going to matter to Ezra. He's going to starve potentially in that environment, right? You know, so, so recognizing that um, we're either all individuals or at least we're all of a mix of phenotypes is kind of important, right? So um, we're not all the same. We're not homogeneous as a population by any stretch. Uh, We're pretty heterogeneous, but maybe there are groups of us that that would be uh, feasible to address in different ways with different kinds of supports, different nudges would be helpful. Um, But we don't think about it that way yet, and and really changing the way we think about it is critical. Uh, Some of us want to blame the food industry, and absolutely I'm not going to stand up and defend. the whole food industry is doing everything perfectly, but it's also not a single thing. It's hundreds and hundreds of companies that some of them are vertically integrated. Some, you know, they're, they're different kinds of uh, things. I would defend McDonald's before I defended Burger King, just based on what I know about the company's practices. I would defend PepsiCo before I defended Coca-Cola. PepsiCo is a company where they've been trying to diversify their their food portfolio, and they've been criticized in the business literature for losing market share because they're actually trying to produce healthier foods in their food portfolio. But as a a senior executive in, in PepsiCo said to me once when I was at a meeting with their CEO and a number of other researchers, sorry Red Bull is just too profitable we're not going to stop making it right so somehow we need you know to find ways to make healthy food profitable to support that kind of thing all kinds of changes the other solution could simply just be to let climate change go and then we won't be able to produce the food that we need for the number of people on the planet so if you look at Nauru, which is uh, an island in the Pacific that made tons and tons of money on mining bird shit for uh, potash, I guess. Um, That population became the most obese population in the world for a very long time. Now the bird shit's all gone, the mining stopped, the value in the country's gone, and they're starting to lose weight. Cuba was quite healthy for many years because of the blockade from the U.S. They didn't have gas for their cars. They didn't necessarily have enough, you know, uh, food. So, you know, people were actually pretty healthy. So we could just collapse the food system.
6: Hi, I I have a comment. First, we we started a company to eliminate sugar spikes with people with diabetes, right? This was supposedly what they care about. And we brought these products to them and these are little diabetes groups of people. And to our surprise, they weren't even remotely interested that you, could, you can come up with this product that supposedly they want, but they really don't want. Uh, so I'm interested in your comments.
2: Well, what I would say is they, again, we have to be careful about referring to a whole group of people as the same. Um, so I did a little experiment one time. Uh, there was a, a group that developed a set of cards about the challenges that people with diabetes face. I don't like to take my medicine at night. I, like to, I, like to, I don't like to shop. I like to eat sugar. Whatever it is, 40 different statements from... A, population of people. And we asked people at a public uh, lecture to look at that and to check off the ones that were relevant. So 100 people filled out this survey, 40 different items to help define individuals, and no two people were alike, right? No two people checked off the whole same, the same set of things that affected their behavior. So, so I would question, you know, um, I, I don't know what the product is, but, but to say that they didn't find it helpful, I'm willing to bet there are some people that might find it helpful and others who don't.
1: This has been fascinating. Is there um, a published book where the layperson could get this information that you presented in your presentation? Where can we find this information? I have not
2: written the book. (laughs) And uh, uh, I mean, there are a number of different books out there that are relevant to this conversation. Uh, There's one, the one in reference to the eating, mindless eating by a guy named Brian Wansink, W-A-N-S-I-N-K. As it relates to complexity, there's a variety of different sources that I've pulled this information from, so there's no, unfortunately, one place to go.
1: So when are you going to write your book?
2: Yeah, well, I, I actually, I wrote the table of contents once, and one of the chapters was, I was the queen of diabetes. I was a Weight Watchers teen queen, and another one was, I was the queen of diabetes. But um, uh, just got distracted and didn't write it yet. So Going back to the issue of... Um the consumers' uh, um, influence on what the food companies do, and it's not all bad news because I notice now, and I take advantage of it in the in the produce section. Now you have all these wonderful bags of produce and greens, and one all ready to go, right? And I think that's one of the things with junk food; it's so convenient. And now, now, now you've got produce that's so convenient. It's more expensive, but there's no waste. It's all ready to go. And uh, I can go to Safeway, and for $4, I get a big bag of super greens, and, and you look at the ingredients, they're all there, and they're all super greens. But the consumers want that kind of stuff now. So that's, a, a, I think, a good indication where it's not all driven by the food companies. It's the consumers want stuff. Yep, yep, I, I don't disagree with that. Consumption drives innovation, if you will, within the context of of food and uh, I noticed there's now starting to be some companies that will deliver to you on a weekly basis all the ingredients to make a, a variety of healthy meals so those of us who've gotten lazy and don't you know don't look up recipes or don't want to go buy all the individual ingredients can do it quite easily so I, I think more of that kind of change is coming but the, the, they need to find a place to add value in order to make money as part of the issue so convenience is part of that.
1: Please join me in thanking Dr. Feingood for a very interesting presentation. Thank you.